Ronaldo is ready. Strikes. Screaming from the rooftops, the Champions League semifinals are now set. And as I said weeks ago on Crossing Broad FC, Tottenham is the most dangerous team in Europe. Welcome into Crossing Broad FC, the only Philadelphia-based international football podcast. I'm Russ Joy. Follow me on Twitter, at Joy on Bride. I'm joined, as always, by the man who once covered Manchester City for Bleacher Report and covered world football. And that, of course, is Phil Kaidel, who you can find on Twitter, at Phil Kaidel. That's K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. Phil, I, I, I hope, I hope at this point you've uh, mopped up the tears that I'm sure shed onto your floor with uh, your beloved Manchester City winning the game but losing the war. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, when Sterling netted the third in extra time to put City through to the semifinal, I strutted around my living room like Reese Hoskins running around the bases, or should I say strolling around the bases last night. Uh, and I made it all the way to my kitchen with my arms outstretched, uh, already figuring that City were going to go to the Champions League final because this sort of win would propel them a long way. And then I turned around and saw some referee signal saying that they were looking at it. And right away, I knew they were dead. I just, you know, when you've watched enough soccer, you've watched enough sports in your lifetime, as soon as the action stops that way, and as soon as they're going to the video review, even not having watched the replay yet, I knew it was over, and I knew that the goal was not going to stand. And by the way, completely accurately chalked off. Uh, There's no question that uh, Aguero was in an offside position when he played the ball. Now, we can get into that rule in a little bit. Um, so VAR got it right. Uh, the last city goal should not have stood, and it did not stand. Uh, but earlier in the match, VAR got it pretty wrong, and, and we can talk about that too. You think VAR got it wrong earlier with the Urente uh, goal? Yeah, I feel like if Urente does what he does uh, midway through the second half and on a corner, uh, he's not watching the ball, first of all. He really isn't. He's, he's lunging into the box, but he's trying to um, account for the defenders who are playing him and also his positioning physically. And his eyes weren't strictly on the ball when it hit his arm. His arm was not necessarily in what they call a natural position. It was extended from his body a little bit, which is why it was able to glance off his arm and then hit his hip. Because if the arm and the hip had been essentially joined together, you wouldn't have had that space for the deflection to take place. I think if Urente is in his own box defending and that happens to him, it's a penalty. So if he's in the offensive 18 and it hits him in that situation, it should be a dead ball at that point. Uh, But it wasn't. Goes off his arm, goes off his hip, goes in, and they send it to VAR. And the officials basically say, I didn't see enough on the angle I was given to change my call. But the problem with that is it was established after the match that there were limited angles that the officials were provided and are provided in these VAR situations. They get like one or two looks. And then, of course, you can't take 10 minutes on this stuff. So it's really heavily dependent on the angle they're given to be able to see exactly what's going on. The best angle to show what Urente had done was actually from behind um, Tottenham's goal, Uh, you know, zoomed in from you know, 
uh, 100 yards away or thereabouts, uh, where you could see the extension of Llorente's arm from his body. Look, it's over now. Uh, it's been a week and a half. Did I cry? No, I did not cry. Was I very disappointed? I definitely was because I felt as though City had done enough um, in the second match to overcome their flaws and failings in the first match. But all that being said, if City were a serious Champions League contender, they never, ever, ever would have allowed Tottenham to score three times at the Etihad. That's and that, just not what Champions League teams do. And I think that ends up being the uh, the ultimate argument in this. You can't allow this to happen. We were talking about this earlier. Um, you know, in, in the NHL, San Jose was a, a, a awarded a five-minute major penalty um, at the uh, the expense of Vegas, and they went on to score four goals and ended up going on to the next round in the playoffs. And the Vegas fans were upset that, that they thought that the penalty was too harsh. It's like, well, at, at the same time, your team didn't have to allow four goals in four minutes. Um, and when what you look at here with City is, I think there were, there were a series of missed opportunities in this game. I disagree somewhat with your assessment of the uh, the Urente part of this because when you jump, his arm is in a natural position for jumping, right? Anytime a guy leaps into the air, with maybe the exception of Ronaldo, your arms are naturally going to end up at about your torso, right? Um, what he did after realizing in that split second that it had struck his arm is he he dropped his arm uh, all the way down. But I, I don't blame the official for um, for ruling the goal uh, in Urente's favor. There was a moment that I thought perhaps it had glanced off of the uh, the city defender's arm on its way to goal. I thought it might have gone Urente to the defender off his arm, then maybe to hip uh, and in. I think ultimately VAR got both of these calls right. Um, uh, if nothing else, I, I think that the shame in it was the Aguero goal, goal at the end because you got well, to Sterling see... Sterling scored it, but Aguero made the play to Sterling to set him free. Yes, yes. Uh, that's my fault. Um, I, I look at this and I think the same thing that I've I've been saying for years now. When you're looking at offside, the camera is fixed in one spot on the stadium. And every single angle that you look at, anytime you're calling offside... There is a certain distortion that comes as a result of that camera's fixed position, where you're trying to figure out that based on depth, is Aguero in line with Tottenham's last defender? And the thing I keep coming back to is, it's 2019. We know that in other sports, they have cameras that run uh, exactly along with the play. In the NFL, they have a track cam. In, uh, in horse racing... There's a track cam that goes around the entire track that stays level with the uh, the horse in the lead. There's no reason at this point that there should not be technology in place. If it's not a track cam that stays exactly in line with the play, then it should be a drone that's over top of the arena or over top of the stadium. I don't understand how at this point we don't have the technology to have something exactly over the ball or over the last defender that we can see beyond a reasonable doubt a straight line that, that sets up where the final defender is and where the p- potentially offending party is. And that th- that's the thing where like I look at this and I go, okay, Aguero was probably off, but it's not definitive to me. It looks like he's leaning. Are we going to talk about like if his shoulder were a few inches shorter, if he had, if he had gotten back a, a split second faster, would he have been on? Sure. But I'm still looking at a, at a position of two players 
when the uh, the camera is not fixed at their exact position going horizontally across the pitch, and that's the thing that bothers me. And then what you end up seeing, I guess, is is you know a lot of the arguments that happen around VAR. Ultimately, the call was right. In in the camera angles that we have, Aguero was offside. But if if you take into into account the elation that that occurred uh, at the Etihad uh, with the city supporters thinking that their team had gone through, watching Sterling celebrate. On what was honestly a great play that I was I was skeptical of in Aguero, I, I couldn't believe he didn't take the shot. And when he laid it off to Sterling, I thought that he was certainly going to miss. So I was impressed that Sterling was able to finish. But you see the elation. And then to your point, it goes to review. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a second. And, and usually the announcers are more on top of this. And I didn't feel like the announcers in this game were really on the fact that like offside was being reviewed and that Aguero really looked like he was off. They were still analyzing the finish by Sterling. And it felt like all in a very quick whirlwind. That Urente thing, that took forever for them to review. This goal and the way that it went down and then seeing the screen, the no goal, VAR review, no goal, and just listening to the air completely escape the Etihad. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. It's something only VAR can do. Well, it was a wildly confusing situation also because the most relieved man in the building was Christian Eriksen, who is a fantastic player going forward, but is not the best player in his own half. He decides he's going to back pass it <laughs> in extra time. And only by virtue of the fact that Bernardo Silva, who of course was all over the place like he always is, deflected Erickson's back pass into Aguero's path. That is the only reason that any of them were offside. Um, if Erickson's ball goes cleanly back and City steals it, the goal stands. Yep. So because it was a broken play, it was hard for the announced team to process why Aguero would be offside and why the goal might be chalked off. And of course, you know, he was a stride and a half offside once you got a, a look at it in freeze frame. But in real time, it looked for all the world like a, a legitimate viable goal. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And there's been a lot of human cry about the fact that um, VAR got the call right, but ruined the atmosphere in the moment and the thrill of watching a live sporting event. It's kind of a shame, but I think it's here to stay. Now, yeah. real quickly, just to go back to the point you made about you know putting a drone out or putting a track cam or a camera that follows the last defender and, and creates that line in instant time. Look, man, this is the same argument that we had a couple of nights ago when Bryce Harper got thrown out of the baseball game because umpire Mark Carlson had a strike zone that moved from pitch to pitch. Um, there's no reason to have a home plate umpire in baseball. There's technology available now where you could do uh, a three-dimensional box for every batter, and you know they do it in tennis with with served tennis balls. Um, there's other sports that have this technology, but there's an esoteric involved. Like baseball has always had the guy behind home plate who is in charge. Soccer has always had people running the lines and calling offside, just like the, the match official at the center dot. Um, I don't think they want to change that. I don't think these sports want to entirely remove the quote-unquote human element. But as long as they keep the human element in place, stuff like this is going to continue to happen. Yep. Um, let me ask you, since you are a City fan and you ended up having to be on this emotional roller coaster, having seen what VAR is, are you still in favor of it being in place in the Champions League? Should it be a universal thing in every league? And do you think that ultimately getting the call is more important than the atmosphere? Yeah, well, I, I actually do. But then again, I'm an attorney. So uh, jokes aside, uh, my training and my profession, we seek to, you know, 
make decisive decisions and create order out of chaos. Now, unfortunately, we're not always the best at it. Um, I think if VAR is implemented correctly and the match officials are given all the angles they need uh, and a lot of the kinks are worked out, um, it's going to be beneficial in the long term. I mean, keep in mind, Man City last year lost to Liverpool uh, in the, uh, I guess it was the semifinal, no, quarterfinal. They, they've only made one semifinal. They lost to the quarterfinal in the quarterfinals to Liverpool, and there were a couple of plays in that tie against Liverpool that went against City that were shown clearly afterward to have been officiated incorrectly. So, ironically, City could have used VAR last year, might have helped them a lot. This year, they have it, and it absolutely murders them. Um, long term, though, if they can put it in play correctly and make it seamless and make it 100% accurate, it's better for everybody concerned because they don't have so many bitter tears about people getting hosed on a bad call and that's why they're out of the tournament or that's why they didn't win the league. Uh, the problem is, as you saw with the NFL this year, you know, National Football League has had instant replay for what now, like a decade? And they're still screwing up. <laughs> the Saints should have gone to the Super Bowl and they didn't because instant replay uh, didn't save uh, the Saints on that uh, pass interference call that should have been called. So to answer your question, I went a long way to get here. I think VAR is for the best, but they have to implement it correctly and they have to use it correctly. If they can't sort out the kinks and if they can't make it effective and efficient, then they should get rid of it. Okay. I I ultimately think that, that VAR is the best thing that can happen for the sport. And I, I get the people who are upset that the, the magical moment, the movie, the movie moment of uh, Sterling's elation being absolutely trumped by, by VAR uh, seems like it's taking the human element out of this game and it's making it more robotic. Uh, I, I get why people are upset, but I think ultimately you need to get the calls right. And I think for the most part, VAR, VAR has been effective. So I, I would hate to see it go. I know that people are going to be upset. but you know, I would be more is. in favor of a rule change that says uh, if you're a midfielder uh, between the 18 and the midfield stripe and you pass it backwards, that ball is live, no matter where the offensive player started from, because nothing is served. Nobody's interested in watching the ball go backwards. So there should be some risk attendant to that. Um, Interesting. A rule like that would have made the city goal stand. But that opens all kinds of other things up because now you change formations. Maybe you just sacrifice your striker and have him hang out on the six-yard line all, all game. Nobody wants to see that either. Smarter people than me can figure that out. But for the for the short term, um, yeah. I'm in favor of VAR, even though it burns City in this instance. It's going to be interesting to see what happens now, because you know that, uh, and, and we'll get to the next game in a moment, but with City now being knocked out of the Champions League, that means that they really only have to focus on the last few weeks of the uh, the domestic league, of, of the EPL itself, whereas, you know, Liverpool, on the other hand, uh, is going to continue uh, to move on in the Champions League. Let's, let's get their game out of the way, because it was the most one-sided of all the fixtures, of course, they won on aggregate 6-1 over Porto. And, um, you know, we said all along that Porto was the worst team remaining in the Champions League. I had said that, you know, Tottenham might be around that level. Um, but Porto really, I think, had, had kind of lucked out to this point. Liverpool asserted their dominance. And now, you know, on one hand, you could say that it's going to be a little bit of a tougher sled for Klopp to have to, you know, now... Um, set his lineups and, and not only go for the EPL where, you know, they're now a point behind going into the final few weeks, um, but well within striking distance of City, and also having to, you know, once again try to go deeper into the Champions League and try to get back to the final. 
uh, I don't think there's a whole lot to take away from this fixture other than Porto really didn't belong at this stage and Liverpool was an exponentially better team. Is there anything that uh, that I missed there? No, and, and the arguments we talked earlier before we went on, um, Juventus's president, I guess it was today, once again sort of floated the idea of a Super League or uh, qualification to Champions League being premised more on performance within the Champions League rather than direct uh, placement uh, and earning spots through your league place. And we sort of touched on this in the last show. I mean, there are teams that go into the Champions League but get depleted. Like they have a league finish that puts them, say, third or fourth in their league, but then they get depleted through players leaving. They don't replenish. Uh, and now they're in the Champions League group stage, but they're 10th in their league standings. They clearly don't belong. Yep. That's kind of what happened with Porto here. And, and the argument for a Super League or the argument for at least, you know, uh, premising Champions League qualification and participation on consistent, viable performance in the tournament, it's intended to eliminate situations like uh, Liverpool going through 6-1 on aggregate against Porto. Now, the flip side of that is if you put rules like that in place, now the impossible dream stuff never happens. Like Ajax might not even be in this tournament under those rules. And Ajax is in the semis. So I'm not really comfortable. Uh, the whole Super League thing makes me uncomfortable to begin with. But the idea that you're going to lock Champions League teams in based on their performance in the tournament as a you know a qualifying factor in prior years, it just makes it harder and harder to see anybody other than the same six, seven teams over and over and over again. I'm willing to live with the fact that Liverpool throttled Porto uh, in this tie because I didn't watch four minutes of it. it. didn't matter to me. And if City had played Porto, I'd been thrilled. So I, I don't want to touch this. I'm fine with the way it is. I like the idea of a Super League, and I think that we should implement it immediately. I want to see the best teams in the world continue to play each other week after week. But then what's going to happen with Real? I mean, where will they play? Oh, come on. That's hurtful. I mean, like, look, I, I would like to see Real go head-to-head with the cities of the world week in and week out. And I... I I mean, you know, maybe we're looking at a scenario where the way that the Champions League is set up, the the group stage is almost a joke, right? Like there are so few times that a trash team ends up making it into the knockout stage that I, I kind of like question the the entire um, viability of the of the whole thing. Well, it's money. I, I get it. I it's just like I look at it. I I don't care about Porto, right? I I I, I don't care if I ever see Porto play again. Ajax is like the one interesting club in this whole thing because their their payroll is low. They sell their guys high. Um, but like, I, I want to see the best teams in the world play. You know, you and I had breakfast. We were talking about the um, the issues that, that exist right now in the NHL playoffs because so many of the top teams got knocked out. And it's like, well, who cares at this point? You know, I look at this and I, I think I would have much rather see a Real Madrid play in the spot of Porto, right? I, I would have liked to have seen another team from England potentially there or like a Sevilla or a Valencia or like maybe PSG, you know, somehow getting through. I want to see these better teams, these teams that have the ridiculously high payroll because they want to gun for the best team in Europe. I want to see those teams play. I don't care if Zenit gets back into the Champions League next year. I don't care about Porto. And like, you know, you could say that it's elitist of me because I'm not living in one of those countries. And so it doesn't mean as much to me, but like, I don't know, man, like, I, I want to see the best in the world play. And yeah, when you have a obvious... team like, wasn't it, was it Schalke that were in the last round, but Schalke yes. was, was near the bottom of the Bundesliga? Correct. And this is part of the problem that I continue to run into. It's like, 
I almost wish the Champions League happened at the end of the season. Like, I, I almost wish that they would just shorten the entire thing. Let's not have it be where it's the top three teams in a given league play and whatever. Give me the winner of the EPL, the Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga. You want to throw Portugal in? Fine. You want to throw the Eredivisie? Fine. Pick 12 leagues. I don't care. Get those champions and make that the Champions League. Let's not have this be like the International Champions Cup. I mean, like, let's make this the actual Champions League. You won your table? Great. You won your domestic league? You did it over 38 weeks? Awesome. Now let's see who's the best team in the world at the end of the season. Let's not base it on the previous season. I think that's where this whole thing is flawed. Leicester City goes, has an incredible season, and then the next year they're in the Champions League, and it's just iffy, right? When these teams get depleted, these teams sell guys off, you're not seeing the champions of Europe in that moment. You're seeing the champions of Europe from a year ago and some of the other teams who were at the top of the table last year. It's it's almost the same kind of argument of like what the, the all-star games are in U.S. sports. You're picking guys who are either based on uh, their past accomplishments or guys who have only had a good first half of the season. You're not actually picking who the best players were that season. It was only up until the midway point or so of the season. And that's the issue I have with this Champions League setup. So I get why Juventus's president wants to continue to push for a Super League. I get why people are behind the concept. I want the best teams in the world to play each other. I don't care about second, third, and fourth place. And if that means Real Madrid doesn't make it in because they can't win La Liga, then maybe it throws a little bit more in Florentino Perez's head or in his face that like he's got to improve the team and get them to be able to compete at a higher level with Barcelona. That, that to me, I think is ultimately what I want. But I, I can't imagine trying to pitch that to even these top clubs that, hey, once you're done your long season, now we're going to continue to play into the summer and like pretty deep into the summer. Unless it's a knockout stage, unless it's not a home and home and you play all the games on neutral fields. I don't know what the best way to do it is. I'm not saying that they should. I'm just saying that's what I would like to see. Let's see the actual champions of Europe play each other in meaningful games at the end of a season. The obvious counter to your argument, though, is this Champions League 16 included Man City, and they're not there anymore, included PSG, and they're not there anymore, included Bayern, and they're not there anymore. Uh, Like we talked about with the NHL playoffs, it is really not up to the league, and it's not the league's fault that higher-seeded better teams didn't post and show up when the playoff bell rang. The league can only do so much to foster and create, um, you know, the matchups that we want to quote unquote see on paper. Um, you got to play the matches. You got to do the job. Look, City were prohibitive favorites against Tottenham and did not go through. That can't be helped. And you, you, you had it set up the way you wanted it. Okay, you would have had City going in and in there with Ajax and Barca and Liverpool. That's all. Those teams are exciting. And again, I'm not here to dump on Tottenham. They earned it. They're through. And Tottenham Ajax is a good tie. Um, but just more to your point, there's only so much you can do to set up and protect the glamour teams. Eventually, they have to produce and they have to win when they when they are compelled to. And Man City didn't do it this time. There's just no other way for me to say that. I got you. I don't know. I'm just disappointed, man. So I am wanna, I. I, I. Look, see, I, I, I love Man City. I, I would I, love to have seen them in the in the semifinals of the Champions League, but they didn't earn it. They I didn't found win. myself. I found myself rooting for City, which was awful. It was a position I never wanted to be in. I can only imagine. But that's what the Champions League has done to me. Um, and now I, I have to face the reality that Tottenham is going to go through, and Tottenham is eventually. I mean, they might make the final. They won't win. Tottenham's not good. I don't care what anybody says. Um, let's finish up with uh, with England while we're there. 
United ends up getting embarrassed over two legs. Uh, don't put a single goal in against Bar- against La Liga's best. Barca wins 3-0 in the second leg, 4-0 on aggregate. And, you know, we said, when they go to the Camp Nou, the idea of United going in, shutting out Barca and putting in two of their own just didn't seem like it was going to happen. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say that it was Barcelona's sharpest game, but we started to see, uh, you know, some real cracks in David De Gea and with the uh, the United back line, and that continued even uh, into some EPL fixtures that we'll get to a little bit later. But United never looked like they belonged in this uh, in this tie, and, um, you know, Barca did what they were supposed to do. They went through in, in very convincing fashion. Yeah, any plans that United had to stay alive uh, against Barcelona definitely did not include allowing Messi to score twice in the first 20 minutes and be down 3 nothing on aggregate after 20 minutes uh, in Spain. Uh Ultimately, when you and this isn't even as we've said before a vintage Barcelona side, but United, as of right now, as we're sitting here, are sixth in the Premier League, so they're not exactly a vintage United side either. And you start to get into conversations of how many of United's eleven would get into Barcelona's eleven, four, right, three or four, maybe I don't know. Uh, Pogba on his recent form, he would be assumed to do it, but on his recent form, you could argue maybe not. Uh, De Gea the same. Uh, De Gea, these are named players who, in for United, in the past six to eight weeks, uh, they're not doing what it says on the package. They are not producing at the level they need to. Um, and De Gea's yeah. been coming up consistently small, and I, I'm I'm genuinely in a spot now where I'm trying to figure out is it is it necessarily all on De Gea, or is it more so on the instability that's been proven on that back line? Um, and you look at it over the last couple of games between domestic league and champions. And I think ultimately, like, there have been moments where you can blame his defense. But I'm looking at two goals, I believe, against Barca and another two against uh, uh, City in the Derby, where De Gea has to make the save. And they were not difficult saves. They were not goals that were, um, you know, something that you would say, like, nobody could stop. They were just bad positioning. They were bad initial positioning. It wasn't like he was being screened off and didn't have line of sight to the goal. It's almost as if like he's just mentally checked out over these last few weeks, and it's really strange to see. There are three goals that I've seen him give up uh, that were really unusual. One was to Messi, where uh, Messi hits a not even particularly convincing dribbling shot in to De Gea's left, and De Gea sort of falls into a crawling position, and the ball squirts under him and in. I mean, it looked like a high school goal or really a U13 goal. Um, and that was pretty terrible. Uh, and then against uh, City in the Derby, which we'll get to at some further length, um, there are two goals that De Gea gives up. One is another medium pace shot from Bernardo Silva. That's a positioning problem because De Gea is too far from his near post. But it's also one he still should have gotten to even being out of position if he was the De Gea of old. The second one, Leroy Zane hits a missile from... I don't know, 20 yards or something like that. Maybe maybe it's 16 yards. I don't have the replay in front of me, but it's far enough out that even though Sané hit it really, really hard, if De Gea is just square to it, and even if he just wants to parry or punch it, it should not be a problem. But he's in position, and he still doesn't stop it. Yep. Like, he doesn't get his hands where they need to be. So you're starting to look at it like, well, what does he do well at this point? He's not positioning himself well, and he's not stopping shots either. So... He looks like the Grinch pretty well. Yeah, well, listen, 
it wasn't supposed to end like this for United. I don't mean in the Champions League tie. They were supposed to go out to Barcelona. But Solskjaer had them playing, you know, free-flowing, fun, scoring soccer, and everything seemed to be back in place. And now you're looking at they have three matches left in the league. They are probably not going to make it into the top four. And so they've committed Solskjaer full-time. De Gea is making noises about maybe leaving again, although at this point, who will take him? But they have, United has six, seven glaring holes that they have to fill. And the Glazers have plenty of money, but there's only so many players you can spend that money on, especially when you consider there's going to be a lot of players who look at the United situation and say, great club in its past iterations, but right now they're six seasons on from Sir Alex. Solskjaer doesn't fill me with confidence. The keeper looks dodgy, and we're not going to be in Champions League. It's not a real attractive situation. So as a City fan, I'm, I'm enjoying this thoroughly. Uh, but as a United supporter, they all have to be really, really concerned because this is a terrible downward tick for a club that seemed to have righted the ship for a little while there. Uh, and now all that goodwill they built up for about two or three months there is basically gone. Don't worry, though, Phil. Ollie's at the wheel. Yeah, that was a that was a funny thing. Ollie's at the wheel. How does it feel? Don't feel too good now. It's, it's, uh, it reminds me of Andy Reid driving the Eagles playoff bus into several ditches over the over the many years. And now it'll be interesting to see if uh, if he goes the way of David Moyes at the end of the season. If uh, if United misses the Champions League for next season, um, if they don't finish in that top four, and now all of a sudden, uh, let's say Mauricio Pochettino ends up walking away from Tottenham after they don't win the Champions League. Um, you know, United was one of the teams that was rumored to be interested in Pochettino. Are you telling me that, you know, if you're an honest United fan, if Pochettino comes available and you're not going to want to pursue him because you thought that Ole had a, had a really good run in, in the, uh, I don't know, like, let's say the three-quarter mark of the season, I'm not so sure you can. I think you'd be, you know, a moron for doing so. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like the way that uh, United kind of got themselves back into contention and, and has fallen off really quickly is very reminiscent of what the Flyers did this season. They looked dead to rights. They switched managers. They they took a little bit of time. They went on a nice hot streak. They got themselves in contention, and then they just fell off. Like, I, I feel like I'm watching the same thing again. It just happens to be soccer and not uh, and not. When you're right, also because it's the same sort of problem that United has, some of their preeminent talents are not on the correct side of, like, age 26. Yep. Uh, they have not old players. I wouldn't say old players, but older players. And older players get set in their ways, and and older players uh, have kind of seen it come and go. And when managers change, you might get a little bump out of them, but then they revert to the mean as, as they're always going to do. Um, that's what you saw with the Flyers. You had a very short bounce uh, when they changed coaches, uh, and it didn't last. And and that seemed to be the same thing that's going on with United now. Now, the problem for United is, well, let's just throw money at it. Like I said, first of all, you may not get those players to come even if you are willing to pay them. But secondly, United has already spent a billion dollars since Ferguson left trying to fix uh, what was broken. And because the manager's seat has had such a, a rotating cast in it, they've never had anything approaching a plan. People want to bang on Manchester City because of all the money they've spent, and I can't defend it. It just is what it is. But nobody can say that Manchester City's ownership group and their football management coterie and Pep Guardiola don't have a plan. There is an absolute plan in place at City. It doesn't always bear fruit. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes you lose to Tottenham Hotspur in the Champions League. 
but at least it's very clear what they are attempting to do and what sorts of players they're attempting to put in what sorts of positions. I don't know what the hell the plan is at United right now. I'm not sure they know either. I was about to say that, uh, you know, I was, I was going to make the, the point that Pep Guardiola might have a plan in place, but he's continued to prove ever since leaving Barcelona he can't get his team over the hump in the Champions League. But uh, I'll save that argument for another day, even though it's correct. Um, let's take a look at the last Champions League fixture uh, really quickly. We've got Juventus and Ajax, and Ajax have, have earned everything they've, they've gotten in this Champions League. They have not changed their style of play. They have played with reckless abandon. They've played with teenagers who have been major contributors to their effort. And this Juventus team that I quite frankly thought was going to park the bus was going to play the perfect kind of defensive Italian soccer that would get you through. It, it was it was absolutely uh, shocking to me to see Ajax go in and insert, assert a dominance of, of sorts that they had done against Real Madrid in the uh, in the round prior. But to see them go into Torino and and do this to Juventus at home, I, I have to to take my tip my cap. Like it, it really was something to see, and with with Ronaldo hampered by uh, you know uh, a muscle injury that we said you know was going to be tricky to see if if they were going to be able to get him healthy enough. He he had a good Champions League. He had a good run, um, but ultimately this this Juve squad just didn't look like the kind of club that that needed uh, that had the ability to to get over that final hurdle. If they had played against a team that were that was slower than Ajax, or maybe played a, a little bit more of a traditional conservative style, I think Juventus probably would have gone through. But Ajax represented the perfect storm of youth and speed, and uh, and us against the world mentality that that Juventus and Real Madrid in the the round prior just could not stack up against. Well, and so the thing that really took me by surprise and, and impressed the living hell out of me was this. So Ajax. Draws at home 1-1. They probably should have won that match by more, uh, but they didn't. Um, and so, yeah, they get the 1-1. They don't even win it. Then they have to go to um, Torino, as you said, and play Juve. And Ronaldo scores in the 28th minute. And you're thinking, well, that's that then. Like, you know, Juve have the away goal. They're now up 2-1 on aggregate. This is the part where the young team kind of caves and doesn't figure it out. And the team you expected to win wins. And everybody gives Ajax, um, you know, participation trophies and you'll get them next year's. And Ajax isn't having it. They, they score six minutes later in the 34th minute to, to tie it up. And they score the winner in the 67th minute. Now, the other piece I'll say is if you look at the match stats across the board, the possession was even. The passes were almost dead even. Pass accuracy is almost dead even. Fouls, all of it. Ajax played Juve to an absolute standstill in its own home. The more experienced team with the the better lead player. And they got the goal that, that won at the end. So, I mean, what can you say? They did it. That they did. I'm bummed. Not only do I watch my favorite team go out, but then I watch my favorite player go out. And now all of a sudden I'm faced uh, with the reality that I've either got to cheer for a mortal en- enemy in Barcelona, which I won't do, cheer for Liverpool, who I don't like, cheer for Tottenham, who I think are trash, or go with Ajax, who knocked out my favorite teams. And I'm going to root for Ajax, so they're going to lose. But uh, I- I'm going to root for Ajax because it feels like 
if there's one team in this uh, remaining group of four that can fundamentally change the way that some people look at international football, it's going to be Ajax. They're, they're doing everything counter to what most teams in the Champions League at this point do. They continue year after year to cultivate their talent, to grow their talent, and then <laughs> to sell their talent off uh, to the highest bidder. We'll see how it works out for them. But if they continue to play the way that they did um, against Real and Juve, they're going to put themselves in good position. Now, if we look at this realistically, uh, they've now got to go up against Tottenham, a very quick team. And so if, if there's one thing that's kind of working against Ajax, is, against Ajax's favor, it's they're not going to go up against any flat-footed teams. The the three remaining opponents, I would say Barcelona is probably the slowest of the uh, the three other remaining teams. But, like, you can't get into a track meet with Tottenham. I mean, you could try, but you're not going to catch them off guard like you did with Real and Juve. Like, this this should, in theory, be a high-scoring fixture. And if Ajax is able to, uh, you know, maintain that, that pace of play and not get themselves caught out on a counter by Tottenham, they very well could go through. Um, so I don't know if you want to get to, predi- to uh, predictions now, but I, I kind of feel like that's where this whole thing is trending. You've got Tottenham and Ajax, and then, of course, Barcelona and Liverpool. You want to throw down? Yeah, well, I'm going to go. Well, I don't know if it's shock or not because I haven't looked at the odds, but I'm definitely taking Barcelona over Liverpool, and I suppose that won't surprise anybody insofar as I'm a City supporter. I think, though, the reason that Barcelona will go through is is twofold. Uh, one, um, they're better. Uh, and they have the best player on the planet, and they're better. But two, Barcelona have already taken care of their league commitments in you know, for all real intents and purposes, and can pour all of their energy and effort into this semifinal. Which, by the way, if you're Barcelona, aren't you looking at this field that's left and saying, we should win this? Yes. This is our year to do this. So As the only actual champion remaining. Right. So I, I trust them to get that job done in that situation. Um, so... Um, that's, I shouldn't say it like that. Ix is no, yeah. no. I hear you. So, so that's you know that's point one. But as I indicated earlier, point two is Liverpool have problems on the domestic front. Um, you know they still have to play uh, three more matches. They're down a point uh, in the Premier League to City. I don't know if you ask the average Liverpool supporter what they would prefer more in terms of either winning the Champions League. Or winning the Premier League, which they've never done. I mean, they had many, uh, you know, top flight titles before it became the Premier League, uh, but they haven't won the Prem yet. And I think a lot of Liverpool supporters would much prefer to win the Premier League over the Champions League, which seems silly, um, but that's kind of where it is. And as I indicated, Liverpool's running is really tough. Uh, they have to go to Newcastle. They play Wolves at home. Um, they're going to beat Huddersfield by five uh, in their home match with, with Huddersfield. But so that's four out of their five remaining matches, Liverpool, that are really tough asks. And, of course, the, the first leg of the Champions League semifinal is, is in Barcelona. So, you know, I, I, I'm taking Barcelona. I think Barcelona probably win the first leg something like 3-1 uh, and put Liverpool in a really tough position. And then, then you're going to have the situation where Klopp is starting to weigh, are we really still in this tie? <laughs> you know, how much... How much more energy and effort can we pour into trying to get through, or should we pour all our effort into trying to chase City down? But of course, they don't even maintain their destiny in, in the Premier League because City have the one-point lead with three matches to go. So that's why I'm taking Barcelona, and I'm taking Ajax primarily because Youngman's son, who has probably been Tottenham's best player over the last three months, and certainly was the best player over two legs against City in the Champions League 
quarterfinal, he's out for the first leg of the Ajax tie, and they don't have Harry Kane. So I think they play Ajax better without has... Harry Kane anyway. No, Harry so Kane's he, an overrated player. We've been he, we've been through this before. He until he signs with Real, and then he's the greatest striker in the world. Um, yeah, Ajax, I think, goes through, which will be fun. Um, I, I'm almost rooting for Barca. I'm going to be honest. As much as I don't like Barcelona, I think if, if Ajax is able to knock out uh, Tottenham and then is able to take down Barca, this ends up becoming one of the more incredible runs we've seen of a, of a team that's not one of the major you know four leagues in the world. Um, so it, it, I, I think more than anything, it would be cool to see Ajax go through. And I want to be able to say that they went through the best teams. And if you're telling me that you're going to knock out last year's Serie A winner, last year's uh, Champions League winner, uh, and last in this year's um, winner of the, um, the, the La Liga, duh, on their way to winning this Champions League. I mean, that, that is a pretty great story. I, I, I'm not that interested in seeing Ajax play Liverpool. Give me Ajax Barca. Let's see if Messi is able to raise his game to the next level and win his first Champions League in, what, six years, seven years? It's been a while for Messi and for a guy who has been absolutely underwhelming on the international stage with Argentina. Let's see if he's able to raise his game and go out and, and seal the deal for uh, for Barca. I don't know if he can do it, but we'll see. Gotcha. I, I agree with you. I actually think Ajax Barca would be an extremely entertaining final, especially since it's only one match. I mean, you only have to play your best for 90 minutes to win it, uh, unlike uh, all the, the two-leg ties where quality tends to bear out um, before you get to that final. Yep. All right, so we now have our picks in. We're, we're both in agreement. Ajax and Barca go through. That's at So least I, we're I would put all your final. money on Tottenham and Liverpool and, and all Premier League final because, again, it is the greatest league in the world. Blah. Sorry, threw up in my mouth again. Uh, let's take a look at the the prem. Let's uh, do a I, I, you know a cursory glance here. I don't want to get too far into uh, the we we talked a bit about the prem already, but uh, City knocks out United two nil in the derby. We talked about David de Gea being very shaky. I was really surprised to see United go with three at the back against a, a very potent City attack, and uh, I I don't know what's happened to Romelu Lukaku this season. But the idea of having that that tandem of, of Lingard behind Rashford and not seeing Lukaku until later in this game, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of questioning a few things in, in the tactics. You know, seeing um, Pogba playing ahead of Fred, I guess makes sense to some extent, but it never felt like Pogba had, had really put his imprint on this game. And going into it, you just kind of knew that Paul Pogba was going to have to be the guy to raise this team to the next level for them to have any chance against City. And it just didn't feel like it happened. And, you know, I, I guess the counter to all of this is if De Gea actually comes up with both of the saves that were both savable shots, you know, you're talking about a nil-nil draw. Um, Rashford had a couple good efforts. I think it was the, the 19th and the 23rd minute. Um, he had two solid efforts on goal. If either of them break the break the right way for United, maybe you're talking about a totally different game. But uh, he was unable to convert either of those. And ultimately, yeah, City goes on, and, and they were a clearly more talented team, a better coach team. And they're they're just a superior club in the city of Manchester right now. And Is this and really what it's come to for United, that they need to hope for, A, their keeper to save a nil-nil draw for them, or B... 
to edge a goal or two off a couple early chances against the entire run of play. That's where we are with United. That's where Mighty we are with Manchester United. United at Old Trafford. Are you serious? That's where we're at. Are you serious? Yeah. That's where, it. that's where it's at. You know, Sir Alex Ferguson leaves and the whole club crumbles. I mean, they've never... They've never really been that much of a threat since he There's retired. A pretty yeah. compelling argument that he left knowing that this was going to happen. He was like Zidane before Zidane. Yep. The problem is he, for United at least, is he never chose to come back and save them. Yeah, he just. I don't sits even know if he could stands. save them. Well, not now. Maybe three years ago, not now. But he likes to sit up in the stands and and uh, you know hold court and have everybody remember that when they were glory, glory, Man United, he was at the helm. Um, it's almost unfair. We've talked about this before. It's almost unfair to the managers who have worked the sideline for United in the past five or six years that Ferguson still has that sort of presence with the club. It would have been a lot better, I think. And again, you know, who am I to say? But I think it would have been better for a lot of those managers if, if Ferguson had just said, I support the man and I wish him all the best, but I don't really have anything else to say and I'm not going to sit in the seats and you know, try to put a happy face on all of this. Yep. I think you're right. I think it, it's the ultimate distraction. It's a shame. But uh, you know, United is in this weird spot now where you mentioned earlier they're sixth in the table. And their their chance of getting themselves back in Champions League contention is uh, rough. It's not, it's not good. It's they, rough they, to they're say the three, least. They're three behind Chelsea and two behind Arsenal. As, as I often like to say, a lot of times it's not so much the points you have to catch up. It's the number of teams ahead of you. Um, this is like what you see at the end of a lot of wild card chases uh, in uh, baseball, right? You'll talk about a team being three games out of the wild card with three weeks left, and you think, "Oh, wow, they're right there." Yeah, except there's three other teams between them and that second wild card spot. You know, somebody's a half game back, somebody's a game and a half back, somebody's two and a half back, and you're three. The problem is not making up the three game against the team that has the spot right now. It's the fact that all these other teams are playing and accruing wins, or in this case, uh, in the Premier League, points. And you can't really stop them from doing what they do. Um, you know, pretty clearly, if if, uh, if Chelsea win out, it's their spot. If Arsenal wins out, they probably get there unless Chelsea also wins out. So United has to win out and they need help. And on their current form, do you even trust them to win two of these next three matches they have? I don't, I'm not sure you do. Well, not necessarily. So let's take a look really quick at who Chelsea, Arsenal, and United have. Um, let's look at Arsenal first because Arsenal is in the semifinal of the Europa League, so they're they're the only club who have another uh, uh, another commitment outside of the EPL. They've got two games coming up against Valencia on the second and the ninth. They've got Leicester City, who as of recording today are tenth in the table. They've got Brighton, who as of recording today uh, are nearly in re- relegation zone. They're only three points away from relegation. They're seventeenth uh, in the table. And their final game of the year is going to be against Burnley. Burnley happens to be 15th in the table. So they've got... They just drew with Chelsea, though. Burnley just drew with Chelsea. They're not not that bad. But just based on points, they've got probably the easiest schedule to go. Then you look at at United and Chelsea. United plays Chelsea on Sunday at 11.30. The whole season for United comes down to this. You can make the argument that, that the season kind of comes down to this for Chelsea as well. Knowing that Arsenal are going to go up against three pretty bad teams, um, Chelsea needs to get all the points they can get. Now, a draw against United isn't the worst thing in the world. You can't drop these points to United. It would be catastrophic for them. Especially not the way United are playing right now. Um, This is a classic wounded beast situation. You just have to step on their necks. So United also have Huddersfield and 
uh, who are 20th, and Cardiff, who are 18th. So if you want to make the case that, like, anybody has the worst opponents remaining, two of United's opponents remaining, uh, if, if you were going to calculate based on points, they have the easiest two-leg schedule. But the problem for them, of course, is they have Chelsea. Now, if you want to make the positive case for United, it's just simply if you're able to get uh, the victory over Chelsea and win out, then there's a, a very high chance that you end up going through. Arsenal's got a kind of weak schedule. If you look at Chelsea's remaining schedule, of course, they have the United game. Um, I misspoke before. Chelsea's also in the Europa League semifinal against Eintracht Frankfurt. So they still have to weigh this as well. United's actually the only team that, that doesn't have any um, non-EPL commitments. Um, they've got United, then they have Watford and Leicester. So two of the teams are going to end up playing Leicester in these final three fixtures. Um, Watford's not a, um, a beast by any uh, stretch, but they're eighth in the table. So you could make the, the case that I guess Chelsea has the hardest schedule remaining, followed by maybe United just by virtue of having to play Chelsea. Arsenal have the, the lowest overall uh, over three to go. How do you see this one playing out? Well, I would ordinarily say Arsenal have a chance, except they just got their teeth kicked in by Wolves. Um, Arsenal haven't been reliable all season. Um, I'm giving. Do they miss Arsene Wenger? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please don't. They, they they miss a lot of players. They don't necessarily. Ooh miss ooh Wenger. ooh! Arsene Wenger moves to United at the end of the season. Uh, well, Wenger would be interested. United would not. Uh, I'm giving this to Chelsea primarily because I don't trust Arsenal or United to win enough or accrue enough points to chase down Chelsea. And I also do not believe that Man United can get a result against Chelsea. I think Chelsea will win against United and put themselves in such a dominating position uh, that the other two will fall away. Okay. Um, is there anything else you wanted to hit in the EPL? No, nah, I think we've got it basically covered. I mean, we, we've talked in the past about the fact that the, the fights for the Champions League places are only so interesting. Uh, and, you know, the truth is there's only one relegation spot left uh, in question. Uh, and it would take Cardiff City chasing down Brighton uh, to make that happen. And I don't, I don't think Cardiff's that good. Uh, I think Brighton will catch enough points out of these next few matches to stay up. Although, although it might not be a permanent thing for them, they may go down next season. Wouldn't it be fun to see Chelsea and Arsenal both advance to the Europa League final and then know that there's an automatic qualifier for the uh, the Champions League for one of them, and then depending on how the domestic uh, fixtures go, there's a chance that the other could still get in just by virtue of being fourth. I mean, it could be interesting. Well, you who would have, love that? You could, have, you could have five EPL teams. Who would love that as either Wolves or Watford because then that would bump down a Europa League place to a seventh-place Premier League finisher. Yep. Um, which, you know, we can joke about the Europa League all we want, uh, but if you support Watford or you support Wolves and you actually get to play European football, even if it's just Europa League, that's pretty great. Sure is. Uh, let's move on to the Bundesliga, because the Bundesliga actually does still have um, a, a legit competition going on at the top of the table. You know, we, we kind of declared that Borussia Dortmund were dead to rights after they got stomped into Clásica, but they're only one point behind Bayern. And... Um, you know, going forward, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, they I fully expected Dortmund to drop points in the last week and a half, and they did not. They've uh, both Munich and Dortmund have won consecutive matches. Bayern Munich is still up by one point, uh, but you we just did the analysis of the finishes uh, of the contenders in the Premier League for the Champions League places. Um, for Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, you would have to argue Dortmund has a much easier run in than Bayern Munich does. They do. Um, if you look at who Bayern is going to end up playing, they've got third place Red Bull Leipzig, 
They also have Eintracht Frankfurt. Now, Eintracht has won their last three. Leipzig are actually the hottest team in the Bundesliga right now. They've won their last five matches in the league. So, you know, if Bayern ends up going out and and beats Leipzig and Eintracht and, and really, you know, seals the deal in this Bundesliga, they will have absolutely earned it. Dortmund's best competitor, uh, best competition going forward is going to be um, Borussia Mönchengladbach, who sit fifth in the table right now. But it's a very distant fifth. Um, you know, Eintracht has 53 points, so they're they're not separated all that much between fourth and fifth. But that gap between third and fourth is is eight points between Leipzig and Eintracht. So, and then it's another eight between uh, Leipzig and Dortmund. So, um, we'll see how this ends up. But wouldn't it be nice to see this go down to the final weekend of the of the um, the schedule for them. I think it'd be kind of cool, especially because we always talk about the fact that there's uh, there's such a lack of, of real competition at the top of a lot of these leagues. It would be nice to see the EPL and the Bundesliga go down to the last couple of weekends. I think it'd be swell. Well, I'm, I'm still rooting for Dortmund, um, despite the fact that they gacked up the league they gacked up. Uh, I think it would be excellent for world football if Borussia Dortmund could unseat Bayern Munich, at least for a season. And as you alluded to earlier with what's going on at Real Madrid, it would shake Bayern Munich out of its stasis and force them to reload and get younger and get stronger, uh, which is only good for the game in the overall. Uh, If we go over to La Liga, Atleti beat Valencia, which technically held off Barcelona winning uh, their eighth La Liga in 11 years. It's, It's still inevitable. Uh, Barca's not going to lose out. Atleti's not going to win out. Um, it's just a matter of which week it's going to be that Barcelona's going to wrap it up, but that's fine. It, it was nice for Atleti to, to go out and get a win. Um, when you look at this, I, I, I see that in the show sheet you put that uh, Zidane happened to mention that Real have won 33 um, La Ligas and asked how many Barca won. Is there anybody who's better right now for La Liga than the return of Zinedine Zidane? Well... His typical style of quiet dignity and grace is how I put it. Um, you know, just a gentleman between the lines and, and off the pitch as well. Um, that's about as close as a your mom joke as Zidane could have come up with uh, in terms of, you know, yeah, yeah, how many league titles we won, how many they won. All I know is that when Barca lifts this trophy, it's going to be 8 out of 11. And I don't know where Real's been all that time, but I think they were still in the league, right? They sure were. They were off... Uh busy winning and dominating the rest of Europe. So that's okay. Those were good times, weren't they? They were good times. They'll be back next year. Don't worry. When they go out and get Kylian Mbappe, who, by the way, said that he is not going to go to Real Madrid next year. He uh, said that he's committed to staying in France, which is funny because if we talk about uh, Ligue 1, PSG has a 19-point lead, even though they lost their last two matches. So technically, they haven't fallen into our 20-point rule about not mentioning their league. But I think 19 is close enough. They beat Monaco on Sunday. Oh, you're right. You're right. They did. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else we need to talk about with Ligue 1? No. Neymar's still dead. I was about to say. Mbappe. The the story with Neymar is that he might be back for the Copa this summer. That's as good a story as you get out of Ligue 1 right now. Like anybody cares, except for the folks who are going to watch that tournament. The only thing that went up in flames faster than Notre Dame. Never mind. Oh, Uh, wow. I know. Uh, let's go with uh, with <laughs> Serie A. Uh, Napoli lost, Juve won. And uh, <laughs> Juve, by virtue of already having won their league and being 
Uh, 20 points up. 20 points up means that we are done talking about Serie A for this week. Let's see if Napoli can close that gap a little bit and we can spend a little bit of time talking about other teams in Italy. Uh, I love the 20-point rule. It's probably my greatest contribution to the show. For those who are wondering, because I'm sure there were a lot, in the J-League, the J-1 League, that, of course, is Japan. FC Tokyo is three points up on San Fresse, uh, Nagoya, is uh, only one point off of second. Uh, Oita Trinita is tied on points with Nagoya. And uh, Kashima Antlers uh, have 14 points. Only eight matches have been played in the J1 League. Any thoughts on it, Phil? When Ronaldo's too slow to play for Juventus, which of those J League teams is he going to? Uh, He will, I believe, be going to Miami FC. Not a bad call. How about that? Uh, if anybody was wondering, since uh, we're still on our 20-point rule, Ajax, uh, for all things uh, all things considered, Ajax is currently nursing a three-point lead in the Eredivisie over PSV Eindhoven, uh, 80 points to 77. Really, that's the only team that can still challenge them. Both of those teams are going to go through to champions again next year. Uh, it remains to be seen, um, depending on how Ajax uh, you know, finishes down the stretch here, uh, it'll be interesting to see. They they only have a game in hand, or I'm sorry, Eindhoven has a game in hand right now over Ajax. So that that uh that's by no means um, out of reach for Eindhoven to catch up. But you have to think that at this point, Ajax, knowing that they're guaranteed a Champions League spot next year, is going to put everything they have into the Champions League this year. Well, especially since, you know, as we've alluded to before, this group probably won't be intact the way it is right now, even 12 months from now. And Ajax has won enough of their league titles in the last 10 years where it's still special. Don't get me wrong. They're not going to want to give it away. But this Champions League chance they have is probably once in a decade for them, maybe once in a generation. They have to jump on it now. Um, last thing, I guess let's bring it back to this hemisphere for a second. Leon right now is leading Liga MX um, over Tigres, then Monterrey, Cruz Azul, and uh, Necaxa. So um, right now it looks like a like a two, maybe three horse lead at the top there, which leads us to our Philadelphia Union Minute, which... Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, I think we're going to have to dedicate a little bit more than one minute to your team, your town, your Philadelphia Union. Um, they have have played eight matches on the season. Right now, they've got 13 points. They're tied on points with Toronto and Columbus. Columbus has actually played one more match than uh, the Union have. Toronto has two games in hand right now over uh, over the Philadelphia Union. But yet another interesting performance. Uh, don't know if you uh, have any feelings on the Union wearing those kind of baby blue uh, jerseys that they wore in the last game, but um, they've they found themselves in a pretty interesting position. They're not total garbage, and if anything, uh, if we've learned anything from history, it's that typically the Union play like total trash until the summer, then go on a late run and still come up short. Interesting to see them actually put together some wins here early in the season. Yeah, the, the fact that I deemed this Union Minute was kind of a snide allusion to the fact that they're usually not a playoff side well it kind of aged about as well as you saying that Tottenham didn't belong in the Champions League they don't when you look when you look at it the Union right now are are in position to host a playoff game for the first time in franchise history Um, it was a relatively easy win over Le Montreal impact um, L'Impact de Montreal thank you who in fact are ahead of the Union uh, in the standings so That's a really nice win coming off a pretty ugly loss to Los Angeles, the LA Galaxy. Uh, But look, you know, we we never figured they were going to go across country and beat Zlatan Ibrahimovic. At least I didn't. 
Um, so they yeah, never, I may they have never to make like this. They wanted to play in that game. You're exactly right. That that Galaxy game was the worst they've looked all season. They just they quite frankly look like they got off the plane, said let's collect a paycheck and let's go home. Well, and I think the Union defenders took one look at Zlatan and were like, really, you want us to take that guy on? Look at him. Um, and on top of that. Typically, MLS officials let Zlatan do what Zlatan wants to do. Uh, if he wants to put both his hands on uh, defender's shoulders to use them as a leverage to get up to a header, they'll let him. Uh, if if they if Zlatan wants to get a three-step running start and sort of plow into the back of a defender and go over him to get to a ball, he'll be allowed to do that too. Because there's a whole lot more money in letting Zlatan do those things and create goals than there is in calling questionable borderline fouls against Latan at home in L.A. That's not good for the league, so that's not going to happen. The thing, of course, that uh, was interesting, it, it happened in consecutive games for the Union. They got shut out against the Galaxy, and then they came back and shut out L'Impact du Montréal. Um, in both games, the Union had a player shown red yet again. It feels like it's becoming an almost weekly occurrence at this point that somebody on the Union goes off the handle or there's a bad call, and... Um, I, I don't know. Wagner ends up getting shown red in this game uh, in the 90th minute. And I, I guess I understand why the call was made like it was. Um, but it, it seems like we're kind of in this boneheaded sort of end of game, uh, you know, situation again, where Wagner goes in on a, you know, a very hard sliding challenge um, down the left flank or his, his right, the uh, the opposing player's left flank, as uh, Montreal is challenging on a counterattack, down 3 nothing with only a minute to go in the game. And I get that it's a it's a hard challenge. I get that it looked worse than maybe it was. Um, and, you know, he was shown yellow um, initially for, the, for the, um, the infraction. You go back and you look at it, and he, he definitely got the player's leg. Um, Watching the impact player throw himself and thrash like he was shot in the, you know, shot by a sniper wasn't a good look. Um, the ref ends up going to VAR and ends up overruling his initial yellow and, and shows a straight red. I don't know if it's concerning to you. I don't know if this is a Jim Curtin thing. Um, but seeing so many union players this season being shown red, I don't know if this is just a lack of discipline, if this is just a new way that, that MLS um, has kind of mandated pro the referees association to enforce games but i think this is now the, th the third game at least maybe fourth game that the union have seen red and i'm just trying to wrap my head around it because it it feels like that number is up small sample size would be my reply um this won't be a lot of reds in three months uh we did july and they're sitting on five or six reds so you won't be quite so concerned about this i think it's also the mark of a club who knows that it is not in you know the locked-in playoff traditional positions and is trying to establish itself uh, as having an identity of being a tough club to play and a, and a winning club. Now, look, obviously a 90th-minute red card when you're up 3-0 is not a winning play and, and not indicative of anything other than just losing your mind. Um, but the other reds that they've accrued and, and the aggressiveness with which they've played in the first eight matches is more indicative to me of a, of a club that is tired of having people like me talk about the Union Minute and tired of talking about the fact they've never hosted a playoff game and tired of talking about the fact that, um, you know, the manager is constantly in question of whether he's going to stay. Uh, tired of talking about the fact that during the match, opposing keepers are picking up uh, squares of sod because the pitch isn't right. Like, 
Which is a mess. This, their... this never has been a thing for the Union. When Ernie Stewart was here, he limited every kind of um, other event that was being held at Talon to make sure that it was a pristine playing surface. That that has changed under Ernst Tanner. But yeah, you're right. It, it's it's strange. So they're trying to keep the attention on their play and on their results because so much of the peripheral stuff around this club is so goofy. You know, I, I we talked briefly before we went on. After the match, Curtin should be talking about how it's a wonderful win. He's worried about Andre Blake, who, when it turns out, he tore a groin muscle in this win. Um, but he's worried about Blake and happy about the match result. That's what he should be talking about. You know what he was talking about instead? The fact that the Union have to go to Vancouver this weekend, and because there are rules in MLS uh, limiting the number of charter flights that any team can take, which I presume is to preserve competitive balance to keep the richest clubs from just chartering all over the place, uh, you know, Kraft could send the revolution on his plane anywhere he wanted to. Um, he'd probably send them to an incinerator before he'd send them, well, I don't know. Or to a strip mall in, in Florida, um, oh, also possibly. A strip mall. They'd have to bring so in more personnel. That. It's a, bi- a big team, so they have to bring All hands on deck. So there it is. That's what I was looking for. Um, yeah, so the Union have to go to Vancouver this weekend. They're connecting through Chicago on the way out, and they're connecting through Toronto on the way home. Now, as someone who... Uh, took a vacation recently to Mexico and connected on the way home. I can tell you, it sucks. When you are coming home internationally, you have to uh, get off the plane and clear customs. So um, it's not it's not a good look for this league, the fact that this team uh, has to, like a bunch of insurance salesmen, um, take connecting flights to get to and from their matches. Um, but, you know, for that purpose, you know, Curtin might as well be asking... Uh, you know, Jay Shergum to sign Luis Suarez. Like, this rule isn't changing, especially since MLS is expanding and they're trying to keep competitive balance to the extent that they can. And, you know, the, the new clubs that come in may not have the deepest pockets. They're not going to then change this rule to allow teams to fly all over the place. They're stuck. Please stop expanding MLS. Just stop. I know. Stop like, expanding. W- what is the their target this number? League 52? Stops, like, seriously, the, the second that this team or that this league stops expanding, we might finally get Jay Sugarman out as owner of the union. For the love of God, can we please j- just tell him that we're done expansion? Please. Please. I can't. I can't do this anymore. And it's not like there are that many competitive teams in MLS that, that it's like demanding that there should be this continued expansion. I just don't get it. I'm done. I'm over there it. aren't enough players. There aren't enough officials, frankly. And I don't even think there's that much need for programming or demand for people to, to see all that is being offered. Uh, yeah, it, it does seem completely like FC Cincinnati. I, I did a riff on that recently. Um, but that's an offender to me. Like, I don't need to see that. Um, you know, Minnesota United, Minnesota United. Uh, all right. If, if you if you want to. Is Oklahoma going to get a team? How about the Dakotas? How about Montana? You know, I, I, you're right. I joked uh, the last time, you know, the, the good people of Omaha and Topeka are very, very upset. Um, you know, Arkansas, you know, they got all that Walmart money down there. You could certainly put a club down there. Uh, I don't know why Texas doesn't have six teams. Why doesn't Juno have a team? Precisely. I don't know, man. Like, I'm looking at this, and it's like, it was supposed to be 26 teams. Now it's going to be 30. So they like a month. It was only a month ago that MLS said that it was between Sacramento and St. Louis for the 28th team in the league. Now all of a sudden they decide, yeah, you know what, 28 is not enough. We're going to go to 30. 
So now presumably Sacramento and St. Louis are going to get the 28th and 29th spots, which leaves us that that you know the, the final that 30th spot. I don't get it. I think it's fine if your officiating is good, which it's not. I think it's fine if the level of play and um and, and the rules by which teams abide are are level across. If we knew that ownership groups were committed as much uh, from from city to city, but everything that we continue to see is the union came into existence at the wrong time. Because you look at these expansion teams and what they have to do. They're going to have to, any team that wants to, to, or any city that wants an expansion team, is going to have to pay a $200 million expansion fee. Can you tell me, honestly, that you think that the Philadelphia Union would be in existence under this ownership group if they had to pay that lucrative of a uh, an expansion fee? I don't see Cer- it. Certainly not. So what you're, what you're doing... The- Go ahead. Yeah, not in the iteration they are now. In other words, you wouldn't pay $200 million to get in the league and play a talent. You just wouldn't. No. You'd have to put that stadium somewhere else. That You're right. They came into the league at a time when purchasing into the league was relatively affordable, and it was okay to have an 18,000-seater. And it's not okay anymore. And they are, you're right, the union are, are becoming, uh, they're going to be rendered moot in a lot of ways. Um, and as you get wealthier, look, look what happened with Atlanta United, right? Once you get wealthier ownership, those clubs are going to dominate. No matter how many rules the league puts on player acquisition and designated players and allocations, you, you can write all those things up all the way you want to. Ultimately, the clubs with the deepest pockets and the most attractive venues are going to be the ones that attract the best players, and those are the ones that are going to win titles. To give you an idea of how much the valuation or the expansion fees have jumped over the last few years, we're talking about a $200 million expansion fee. Back in 2015, when NYCFC came in the league, they paid $100 million. So they paid half of what's going to be expected going forward. And they could have afforded a lot more, but yeah. anyway. Prior to that, the highest fee had been uh, Montreal for $40 million, only three years earlier in 2012. The Philadelphia Union, when they became uh, an expansion club, their expansion fee was $30 million. So we're now talking about nearly seven times the initial investment that it would have taken to be an expansion team back in 2010. Nearly seven times that money to have an expansion team now. And what you're ultimately, like what you're really going to get if you have that high of an expansion fee is a committed ownership group that actually has money to compete. And what has happened is instead of the union being rewarded in a sense for being in existence in MLS for 10 years or give or take 10 years, Instead of them seeing any kind of real reward for, it's not like they deserve a reward, but instead of them being rewarded for continuing to do whatever it is they do, you're seeing them continue to get pushed down and down and down farther by um, ownership groups that actually have the ability to spend, that are able to come into the league with a more competitive roster from the get-go than the union have typically had. Now, I get that they're fourth in the table right now, but it remains to be seen if they're actually going to be able to continue this throughout the, the entire season. But you're seeing year after year expansion clubs making the playoffs or being real players for designated players. And it's taken until what? This this season really feels like the first time the union have begun to allocate some kind of funds for legitimate players. I mean, I know that Ali Bedoya was a record-setting um, transfer at the time. I know that Marco Fabian was was the record-setting transfer this year. But we're not talking about about like fees that are in the double-digit millions. We're talking about guys that maybe get like, what, $3 million on a transfer? And that's supposed to get us excited in Philadelphia. 
as if Philadelphia is Des Moines. You know, it's nonsense to me. And if MLS really cared about there being an equal playing field, they would mandate that teams pay to a floor. And when I say pay to a floor, I mean that it's it's got to be a significant cap floor. And it's not happening right now. If the union had to do that, Jay Sugarman would have to sell the team or bring on outside investors. Perhaps Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who are you know still in talks to sell their share of, uh, of Crystal Palace in the EPL. I don't know how this is going to go down. I have to hope that at some point there's going to be another owner that comes in that has legitimate capital that they can throw on the table and make this team more competitive for DPs. But until it happens, you know, it's nice to say that the union are having one of the best starts they've ever had to start a season. But you can't convince somebody like me who's been following them since day one that this is anything more than an aberration because we, you know, we've just kind of been conditioned at this point to expect that when they have a good run that the bottom's going to fall out. And now it's not a question of can they continue this, it's when is the bottom going to fall out. Until we have a competitive ownership group, I, ju- I just don't see the long-term viability of this team, you know, in the Eastern Conference or MLS as a whole. But let me ask you this, so like even if they had a, an ownership group that had much, much, much deeper pockets, how many revenue streams can they really create out of Chester? I'm sorry to keep dumping on town and dumping on Chester because I actually enjoy going to those matches. But when you're talking about Major League mm-hmm. Soccer and some of the venues that other teams are playing in and markets that other teams are playing in, I just don't see a way through, even if you have very wealthy owners, other than just being able to splurge on players and, and putting like nearly a, say, English championship level team side out in the MLS and possibly winning a title. What else can you do to differentiate yourself and make it worthwhile? And, and then the other question or concern that I have is, so the rumor is that expansion is going to go to 30 or 24 now. It's going to go to 30. What if it goes to 40? Right, because if, if Peter Vermees at uh, Sporting KC has referenced the possibility that eventually this could be forty, you know what that means, then, right? Relegation. It's pro relegation. And you know the union have a hard time drawing to talent when things are going reasonably well. You're telling me anybody's going to go down to Chester watch them play in MLS two? Like I just don't see that happening. Nope. That they're as likely to fold as they are to survive a relegation battle. Yep. Uh, and, of course, uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with Bethlehem Steel because right now Steel have been playing uh, some back-to-backs at Talon um, following Union games. You have to think that at some point they're going to move, I think. Well, the other thing is I wonder about the viability of the minor league under MLS right now if you end up with MLS 1 and MLS 2. Like, is there really going to be a demand for a Bethlehem Steel or, or whatever its iteration is after I just, that. I think Steel would end up just being granted a, an MLS 2 level uh, existence. Well, and here again, what's the demand for that? I don't really know. I don't know. Smarter people than me will figure that out. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to uh, wrap up. We've now uh, touched on pretty much every league on the champions. And um, when's the next uh, Champions League fixture, my friend Phil Kaidel? You know. Uh, yeah, it's next week. Boom, baby. Um, next week. It's going to start up on uh, Tuesday, the 30th at 3 p.m. That's going to be Tottenham and Ajax. And uh, Wednesday of next week, we've got Barca and Liverpool. The hope, obviously, has to be that these games are going to finally be on TNT. Uh, they've only been showing one. Um, when, when consecutive games have run, they've only shown one game on TNT, one on, on Bleacher Report Live, on BR Live. Hope has to be that they're going to they're going to show the semis uh, on both BR Live and on TNT. It would be a shame to once again get priced out. That was my, I will say that, that was my biggest disappointment. And it's the problem that I have with Turner 
deciding to go to this model of, of trying to convince you to, to do their streaming service. You know, Juve and Ajax were in a heated battle in that second leg, and I had to wrap my head around, do I now go and pay the, what was it, $3 or whatever for that one game? Do I pay the monthly fee and then rack it to my credit card and then try to remember to cancel it almost immediately? I, I don't like this at all. I don't like this push to, to force me to go with a paid model. I think it's a little bit different in the case of like ESPN Plus, where I'm getting a bunch of different kinds of sports, and they're all the top of uh, of their respective leagues. ESPN Plus not only will give me, you know, access to some NBA, uh, but also some NHL and MLB via the regional networks. Um, I I can't get behind what BR Live is doing. I know that in theory they're giving you access to like the Scottish league, and I think the Eredivisie is there, but I don't want to have to you know start shelling money out of pocket to try to you know go in and get access to the champions league if there's one league i don't feel like i should have to pay for it should be that i know that it's supposed to be the best in the world but i don't want to have to go with a streaming service just to go watch you know uva and ix play their second leg game use tnt and use tbs and do right by the consumer you want to collect your money up until that point fine but it shouldn't have to be something where i've got to like now go and and dish out additional capital just because you want to try to push some people to your streaming service it's my only thought uh, with Man City out of the tournament, I'm just going to be watching highlights on Twitter anyway. Oh, oh, so sad. All right, well, we will be back next week to uh, recap the first leg of the Champions League uh, semifinals and to talk about the fallout from uh, the domestic leagues this weekend. For Phil, find him on Twitter, at Phil Kydell, K-E-I-D-E-L. Not hard to spell. It's Phil Kydell. I'm Russ at Joy Abroad. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.